Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Today's passage is a bit like cooking stir-fry, if you've ever done that before. Sometimes when you're cooking, you know, it's just a matter of tossing a few simple ingredients into a crock pot or a smoker, and you let it sit for six, eight, ten hours, and time is the main ingredient, and after a long time, it comes out perfect. Uh, But with stir-fry, most of the work is actually done before you start cooking. You have to chop all the vegetables up beforehand. So whatever you're going to throw in there, whether it's broccoli or peppers or onions or mushrooms, you've got to chop all of that. If you're going to have meat involved, you've got to get all the chicken or steak or shrimp all pre-cut. You've got to prepare the rice. You've got to have the sauce and the spices all ready in all their little cups on the side. And only once you have everything cut and measured out and at the ready, then you heat that wok up flaming hot and it's basically just dump jump everything in, and two minutes later, dinner's ready. Well, over the past six chapters, it's kind of like our author has been preparing for the walk here in chapter 10. Getting everything chopped up, everything set in its right place and in order. And back in chapter 4, he actually told us what dish he was preparing. Let me read to you chapter 4, verse 14. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Remember that phrase, because we're going to hear it again this morning. Then verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He's telling us beforehand the dish that he's going to serve up. But before we can enjoy these two primary realities of holding fast our confession and drawing near to the throne of grace, we got to get everything set out, chopped up, prepared, and in order. In chapter 5, he showed us that Christ, in fact, has been made our high priest. In chapter 6, he chided us and then boosted our confidence to put our faith in the promises of God. In chapter 7, maybe you recall this, he had to explain to us who on earth was Melchizedek? And then how is it that Jesus, even though disqualified as a Levitical priest, is qualified as a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Then in chapter 8, he explains to us how this new covenant is displacing the old covenant. And then chapter 9, he tells us that Jesus is serving in a new tent, not in the old earthly one. And then in chapter 10, he convinces us that Christ's once-for-all sacrifice really does mean eternal forgiveness of our sins. And then in chapter 10, verse 19, we read this word. Therefore. Therefore means everything's in order. Everything is ready. The veggies, the rice, the meat is cut, the sauce, the spices, they're all standing by. The wok is blazing hot and therefore means it's time to throw everything into the pan. And so this morning, why don't we stand together and feast on the word of God beginning in Hebrews 10, verse 19.
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You may be seated. So this morning we have three simple exhortations or commands in this passage, but they're the result of six chapters worth of preparation. And all that preparation comes together in the flash of a stir-fry pan this morning. Three simple commands. Number one, draw near. Secondly, hold fast. And number three, stir up. Draw near, hold fast, and let us stir up. Let's look at each of those briefly. Number one, draw near. Let us draw near. We hear that in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So if we survey all the chapters that we have read up to this point and we've seen all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, there really is only one response. Draw near. 
Come to this God. Enter into his presence. Let us draw near to the heavenly Father. Verse 19 says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. So there's, there's a sense in which we've been standing at the doorstep of the most holy place, wondering whether we would have the audacity to part the curtain and make our way in. We lack the confidence to go in, and with good reason. Perhaps you remember the story uh, from the book of Esther, where Mordecai is trying to prod her in order to, to go into the court where her husband sits on a hallowed throne. And Esther says, everyone knows that if any man or woman goes to the king in his inner court, in his most holy place, there is but one law to be put to death except to the one the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. If this was true for a Persian king, how much more is this true of the heavenly one? How dare we have the audacity or the confidence to draw near? If I cross that threshold into the presence of the eternal God, how can I know that I won't immediately be condemned to death? Esther entered the court of Xerxes with no guarantee how things would turn out. But friends, can we have any doubt whether we will be received whenever we draw near to God? We have this guarantee. The blood of Jesus, verse 19 says. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the blood of our Passover lamb is dripping from the doorframe. How can you not have confidence to step in? The once slain and now living body of Jesus Christ is our ticket. As sure as Christ's blood was shed for you, as certain as we are, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ, the crucified one, is alive today, we have confidence to draw near. Draw near, verse 19 says, since we have confidence, but we also draw near, verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. So we have the right to come into the presence of God, but we also have the surety that when we get in there, there's somebody who's going to teach us how to properly worship this God. Jesus, our high priest, he's going to teach us how to pray to this God. He's going to teach us how to give to this God. How to love this God. How to serve this God according to his good pleasure and what he likes and what he wants from us. He's going to show us how to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Therefore, let us draw near. Verse 22 again. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Before we came to Jesus, our hearts were guilty and our bodies were dirty. And the truth of the matter is you don't get to march into the presence of God with a guilty conscience and blood on your hands. You just don't get to. 
You have to be washed on the inside and on the out. The Spirit's presence sprinkled in your heart and the baptism of Christ washing your body clean of your past makes you ready to serve the living God. Sprinkled hearts love God and long to do His will. Washed bodies are put to service in keeping His commands. And why, in his mercy, has he gone to such great lengths to give us this confidence and to grant us this high priest over the house of God? It's so that you and I wouldn't stand in the doorway of the house of God and wonder whether we should go in. God wants us to draw near. God wants us to be near to him. That's why Christ has come. That's why Christ has died. That's why Christ has been raised and seated in this heavenly of heavenlies. So that you and I can be near to the God who made us. Forever. Your heavenly father wants you to have the confidence to run into his everlasting arms. So let us this morning, brothers and sisters, draw near. Our second imperative follows very closely in verse 23. Hold fast. Verse 23 reads this way, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Well, what is this confession? He says we got to hold on to this confession. Well, we were told back in chapter 3, that our confession is actually a person. <laughs> Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So this, then, is the confession of our hope. This is what we will hold fast to. It's this belief, Jesus is alive. That's what we confess. That's what we're holding fast to. Jesus is alive. Our crucified and risen Jesus is seated on a heavenly throne, ruling this universe forever. And that has happened by the very promise-keeping of our God. we got to hold fast, it says, without wavering. What makes us waver? Waves, I guess, right? Storms, uncertainties, job loss. Financial distress, moving, instability at church, hardship, crisis, death. All these winds howling around us and waves threatening our faith. And we look about us and we begin to sink. And then a hand reaches out and grabs a hold of us and says, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Let us Hold faith, hold fast. Our Heavenly Father keeps His promises and Jesus Christ is the proof. We confess faith in a promise-keeping God. He is always faithful, so let us always, through every circumstance, hold fast. God has kept His promises. May we believe and trust that God will keep His promises. 
Why are we in, in the weekly practice as a church of reading our statement of faith, our confession aloud together? Well, because it's not our job to improve or evolve the confession. It's simply to hold fast to it, to cling to these truths, to cling to the truth of Jesus Christ as though our eternal existence depended upon him. And it does. And so we must hold fast. Thirdly, we not only draw near, not only do we need to hold fast, but thirdly, this morning, stir up. This is verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if the first commandment encourages us to have confidence to enter the presence of our Heavenly Father, and the second one encourages us to hold fast to Jesus Christ, the person whom we confess, then the third command is focusing on the work of the Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who stirs us up, who causes us to stir one another up toward love and good works. The Spirit helps us encourage one another. And our author is saying that essential to, to that stirring up of one another is meeting together regularly. We don't serve in this tent alone. Under our great high priest, we serve the Lord together. And it's our responsibility to stir one another up to love and good works. Anyone here been in a restaurant before that didn't serve sweet tea? May the record show. Oh, we got one. We got one. All right. I'm going to have to tell you what it's like then if you've never been there. All right. If you travel north of the Mason-Dixon line, you may encounter restaurants. And they bring you tea. And you say, oh, I want sweet tea. They won't bring you sweet tea. They'll bring you unsweet tea with a packet of sugar. <coughs> no, you know what happens. What happens when you put that sugar packet in there, but you don't constantly stir the drink between every sip? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not sweet. It tastes bitter. You have to constantly be stirring that sugar to get any measure of sweetness in the glass. Otherwise, all the sugar settles to the bottom and it's ineffective. Gathering together habitually, regularly, is one of the most effective and is essential, necessary, to stir up the people of God. A people who do not gather will never do love and good works. But you also have to ask yourself, what are you using to stir up the people? What kind of spoon are you putting down in that drink? You stirring up the people of God with your opinions? Stirring up the people of God with your ideas? The people of God with all the exciting things the world says maybe you ought to be doing? That's why verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir one another up. Let us consider. That is, it's going to take thinking. It's going to take hard work, mental energy, not to do what comes naturally and what everybody else in the world is doing. Not to do what comes easy, but to do what is actually loving, to do what is actually good. 
to do what is right, to do what is pleasing to the Lord, it's, you're going to have to consider. Maybe you've seen this in a church before, or maybe you've even seen pastors do this. You know, they're buzzing around the church, and they're stirring things up, and they're speaking to this person, and they're having a conversation in that hallway and behind those closed doors. But is anyone stopping to consider Is any of this stirring going to actually result in Christian love and good works? There's only one utensil we should be using to stir one another up with, and it is this. The word. If church members, if worship leaders, if preachers and pastors are coming into the gathering of the people of God in order to stir one another up with anything other than the word, whether it be their opinions or opinions they got from somewhere outside the church. We may get a lot of activity out of it, but let me tell you, none of it is going to be either love or good work. Hebrews says we have a responsibility to be doing this. Stirring one another up. And he says, and you need to stir harder if you feel like the end is getting closer. If you feel the day drawing near and you sense the presence of Jesus and you say, he could be coming back anytime. He says, you need to be stirring one another even more. Failure at the finish is the worst kind. Imagine running a marathon, which is 26.2 miles, and making it 26 miles and then fainting with 0.2 left. <laughs> that would be the worst. I've never run a marathon before, but I can imagine it would be the worst, right? Imagine leading for 399 laps of the NASCAR race and then getting in a wreck on the final lap. Ah! No. We stir one another up until the day we see Jesus Christ face to face. So draw near. Hold fast. And stir up. Maybe you're surveying our text this morning. You're saying, well, but we've got 14 more verses. What, uh, what, what else are we supposed to do? Um, well, the instructional part is over. Essentially, the rest of the chapter is just warning, if you don't do these three things, and encouragement to keep on doing these three things. A warning and an encouragement. And the warning begins in verse 26. Look at it with me. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What he's saying here is these three seemingly simple commands to draw near, hold fast, and stir up are not suggestions. They are not options. To hear these three commands and then to choose not to do them is to sin deliberately. The author of Hebrews isn't one for gray areas. We love the gray area. We love to think, you know, we live in these gray areas. You know, I'm not doing good, but I'm not doing sin either. It's just a gray area. I'm not acting out of love per se, but I'm not acting out of hate either. You know, it's a gray area. The author of Hebrews is telling us this gray area goes by another name. Deliberate sin. 
James put it, puts it this way, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So faced with these three good things that we're told we must do, if we choose then, having heard the truth, and then we choose not to do them, we are choosing to sin deliberately. According to verse 25, often forsaking the regular meeting of the church is the first step of this deliberate sin. Make a habit of not gathering regularly with the people of God and everything else unravels from there. Because when we're gathered together, we're continually exhorting one another, a.k.a. begging, a.k.a. pleading, falling on our knees with one another, saying, please do not walk away from Jesus. One more week. Just be faithful for another week. Don't walk away from the faith. Trust in him. He's going to keep his promises. This is one of the reasons why people get into the habit of not meeting with the church is because they already are taking steps of deliberate sin and they don't want anyone to exhort them. Whether it be adultery, gossip, slander, theft, lying, abuse, you name it. Of course they're not going to show up to church. They don't want to be dissuaded. But when you come to the gathering of the local church, you can no longer claim ignorance. If you continue to pursue that sinful behavior, that sinful attitude, that sinful objective, you are now stepping over the word of God and stepping over the wisdom and the counsel of your brothers and sisters. And there is no other word for that than deliberately. And when we hear that phrase as believers, sinning deliberately, it should just send a shiver down our spine. You know, we sin accidentally. We make mistakes. We say something, we realize after the fact, that wasn't right. We do something at work, we realize, ah, I'm going to have to go ask for forgiveness. That was not the right way to handle that. But to sin deliberately on purpose intentionally, knowing what God's word says, knowing what the spirit is bearing witness in our heart for us to do, hearing the counsel of brothers and sisters who love us and taking all of that and then just balling it up and throwing it in the trash. Can you imagine? Is that what you and I want to do? And the guy he's describing in verse 26 could very well be any member of College Street Baptist Church. It says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. If you've been here for any stretch of time, that's you. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you go in this church, whether it's in Sunday school or during the worship service. The knowledge of the truth is everywhere in our gatherings and you cannot ignore it whether in song, in prayer, in worship, in preaching, it's everywhere. In giving, in the Lord's table, in baptism. You walk away from that. You walk away from the new covenant and there's only one way to go. Back to the old. You walk away from the gospel and the only place to go is back to the law. Walk away from the cross and you're going to walk back to Mount Sinai. Walk away from forgiveness and you are walking, the author of Hebrews says, toward a fury of fire. 
verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? How much worse punishment, he says. Imagine for a moment that you had broken a cheap vase in your home. And the punishment for it was uh, you were grounded for a week. How much worse punishment then if you go and break a family heirloom? Let's say a vase that's been passed down from your great-great-grandmother. If there was wrath for breaking the vase of lesser value, how much more for breaking the vase of infinite value? If there was wrath for breaking the first covenant, how much more for breaking the second? If there was punishment for rejecting the law of Moses, how much more for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ? And who will bear witness against you? The Father who calls you to draw near and you will not listen. The Son, whom you have not held fast to. The Spirit, whose stirring you have ignored. These three will bear witness to your deliberate setting aside of the new covenant. And how do you exit this new covenant tent? By trampling over the Son of God. Remember verse 20? The new and living, the new and living way through the curtain, it's through his body. That's the entryway. We enter through the body of Jesus. In order to run headlong into your sin, you have to trample over the face of Jesus Christ. Is that what you want to do? We all have our moms. Mother's Day is next week. Imagine some sinful attitudes, some sinful desires, some sinful action that you want to do. Imagine if you had to walk over your mother's face in order to do that. How much more the face of your Savior, Jesus Christ? Imagine your dad knew that you wanted an expensive toy car for Christmas and he took extra sit shifts at work and worked weekends and sacrificed so that you on Christmas morning could wake up and see that car there and have the joy of being able to enjoy that toy. And then imagine a week later, he sees the neighbor's kid playing with that car, and he comes to you and he says, what'd you do with that thing? And you say, ah, I got tired of it. I traded it for a few baseball cards. When you go on sinning deliberately, you are saying to Jesus, the blood you shed on the cross for me, I traded it for a few cheap sins. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can either serve the living God, or you can fall into the hands of a living God. There is no in-between. Either you will one day experience the ecstasy of beholding the presence of God for eternity in the face of Jesus Christ, or you will experience the agony of beholding the wrath of God for eternity in the presence of his divine justice. Those are the only two destinations of all mankind. 
may this be a warning to us all to draw near, to hold fast, and to stir up today. And finally, we close with an encouragement. Every good shepherd, every good pastor believes all things and hopes all things with regards to his people. And the author of Hebrews says, even though I warn you sternly, I'm confident, I have hope, I believe better things for you. Why? I know your past. Verse 32. <coughs> Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. I remember the former days. I remember when this church partnered with Brian Powell in order to put a faithful gospel-proclaiming church on James Island in Charleston. I remember former days when our Sunday school wing was filled with boys from Boys Farm and people like Sarah and Joey, Nathan, Robert, Rose, Heather, Mindy, Branson, Chad, and Miss Terry taught Sunday school in those classrooms. I remember former days, summers when our fellowship hall was filled with families that were discipling their children and sharing meals together. I remember former days when members of this church gave sacrificially to put a roof on the back portion of this sanctuary. I remember former days when the Emmanuel Network gave sacrificially and then sent people here as well in order to do renovations to our church building. I remember former days when members of this church went out into the neighborhoods of this community. When members of this church intentionally served widows, I remember former days on Sundays when they were sitting at the table and filling out bulletins to send to our widows and shut-ins. I remember former days when our members were going into local schools and holding good news clubs to share the gospel with the children who need to hear it. Remember the former days and don't throw away your confidence, the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This is what you need, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You can keep doing the good thing. You can keep doing the hard thing. And when the good thing is to let go, when the Spirit is stirring you up, and when He's stirring you up to do is to loosen your grip on the things of this world, we are confident that we let go of these things so that we can take hold of Jesus Christ. Our better possession, an abiding one, the things of this world, they all come and go, and we with joy let go of them so that we can take hold of Jesus Christ, our great confidence. If you spend your life trying to hold on to the things of this world, it's because you have lost your confidence in Jesus Christ. When you're trying to hold on too tightly to worldly possessions, whether it be a job, a home, status, buildings, whatever it is, you will go on sinning deliberately to hold on to them. That's how it works. And the funny thing is, 
We can even convince ourselves, but I'm holding on to this job for Jesus. I'm holding on to this building for Jesus. I'm holding on to this possession, this place, this status, whatever it is, for Jesus' sake. But it's not until Jesus asks us to let go of that thing that we start to realize the truth. I'm holding on to this possession instead of holding on to Jesus. When our fingers are pried one by one off of whatever that thing may be, we begin to realize my confidence wasn't in Jesus. It was in my ability. It was in the things I owned. It was in this job, this home status. My confidence should have been in the Lord. Do not throw away your confidence. It has great reward. Confidence that when God says, draw near, that's what he actually wants us to do. Confidence in Jesus Christ that he will show us the will of the Father and that the power of his blood still stands today to give us a clean conscience to actually serve the living God. Confidence that the Holy Spirit through the speaking and the counsel of God's word and our brothers, will stir us up to do exactly what God wants us to do together. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve our souls. We are those who draw near. We are those who hold fast. We are those who stir up. That's who we are in the midst of great success or great loss. In the midst of great victory or temptation, this is who we are. We are those who have faith. We are his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great confidence that we have. We thank you for the invitation, Father, to come to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've taken hold of us Help us then to hold fast to you. Holy Spirit, we pray even now, stir us up toward love and good deeds. Most of all, to do what pleases the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.